Welcome to The Reading Room. This is Room 25. On this programme, we talk to John Mitchinson, co-creator of the revolutionary crowdsourcing publisher Unbound. What you're becoming is a sort of a patron. You're helping make a book happen. It's actually becoming part of the process of the book existing. We also talk to ex-indie pop star turned author Jim Bob. I do tend to write stuff on trains and buses and I get in the bath, I'm going to think of a load load of things and I haven't got a pen. And the Reading Room Book Group reviewed Jim Bob's new book, Driving Jarvis Ham. They're two pretty unlikable characters, but you do actually find yourself drawn into their world and empathising with them to a degree that at the end you find quite surprising. Hello, this is Tracy Borman. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren FM. The book we're reviewing for this month's Reading Room book group is Driving Jarvis Ham by Jim Bob, formerly of the band Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine. I'm very pleased to say that joining us down the line is the man himself, Jim Bob. Thanks for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you for having me. Okay, now, Driving Jarvis Ham has been described as as very funny and very dark, and we'll have a look into that in a minute, but could you start by telling us who is Jarvis Ham? The story is basically two old friends since childhood who are now in a car, and uh, Jarvis Ham is the wannabe... You know, he's always wanted to be an actor or he's after fame, basically, and always has been. And the other bloke is his kind of manager, although he d- he's never really managed him. So Jarvis Ham is just a sort of a strange friend. Yeah, yeah, perhaps uh, you might you might call him a, a wannabe, someone who, uh, I don't know, this, t- this all sort of takes place before Saturday night became such a barrage of talent shows and things like that. But you might imagine him as uh, as one of the people on going on Britain's Got Talent, might you? Yeah, because I'm guessing... Towards the end of the book, he's you know he's he's approaching forty, I think, and uh, you know I think you do get a lot of people on those shows, don't you? Who've, who've had this dream since they were sort of teenagers that they've carried with them throughout their life and never sort of never fulfilled it and never really had the chance and probably never will because they haven't got the the talent. <laughs> ironically, on <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on Britain's Got Talent, yeah, yeah. So I mean, did, did the inspiration for that you know sort of come from watching those? Are you a fan of those sort of programs? Uh, no, I'm not a fan of them at all, but. Uh, I think the idea, the idea originally came, for, you know, for creating this character from uh, some people I knew vaguely, and also various well-known people and lesser well-known people on television, who who always seemed a bit like there was. I always felt there was something more to them, you know, other than you know what you saw. Those kind of people that that are often discovered to have some dark secret. And it, it comes from the narrator's viewpoint. Uh, and I was, I was flicking through, I've, I've, we've read it through because we're going to review it, and I was flicking through trying to see if we ever saw his name. I don't think, I don't think we do. I mean, do, in your mind, does he have a name? I'm not trying to get you to give away anything um, here. No, he doesn't. And that's, uh, that's a very conscious decision, was it? The first book I did was a Carter book. So that was, you know, for, that was me. You know, that was my voice, obviously. Yeah. And then I followed it up with Storage Stories which uh, a lot of people thought was autobiographical because it was about someone who used to be in a band and it was in the first person. And with that, with Story Stories, I, I sort of, towards the end of writing it, I thought it was good that, you know, I decided that was a positive thing because people could read it. You know, I, if they wanted to, they could read it as, as a sequel to my autobiography. But uh, I didn't plan on doing that in this one, but I just sort of... It's kind of weird to put someone's name in, isn't it? If you, yeah. Especially because most of the... Most of the dialogue in it, you know, is is between these two friends, and you don't tend to say your friend's name to them, do you? Yeah, yeah. So it makes it, it makes it much more authentic. Now, the the spark for this this story, I mean, what was there a, a, a click moment, or did it gradually sort of build over time? You sort of glue things together. It, it did gradually build. I mean, I had the, I had a basic idea of this character. But that was probably the first thing that came up, and then I had another idea about somebody discovering that, that they've been keeping a diary. And, uh, and then that became, you know, 
took place over a car journey and I sort of snowballed from there. Yeah, and that, that diary you speak of there, it's uh, put together throughout the book really using uh, illustrations and drawings, uh, which I've not really seen before outside sort of maybe the, the odd graphic novel and things like that. I mean, was that a hard sell to the publisher? Actually, it was one of the things that the publisher really liked. I think it might, it might have been a hard sell to other publishers because I had them in my last book as well and that that was, you know, some people did actually, you know, comment on that, you know, could you take the, essentially could you take the pictures out which you know it wasn't an option I, th- I think with the way I write I write in sort of fairly small chunks and I find pictures breaks it up I suppose it's a style of writing but initially it was a way of me actually managing to write something longer than a song yeah. by, by sort of breaking it up and if I put a picture it sort of punctuates something and it's, it's like the end of a chapter and then I can move on to the next you know, that's, I think that's originally why I did it. Moving into into the literary world, uh, you have editors uh, to come across, I mean, and that's probably not something you were doing when. Uh, I, well, I don't know. You never used editors when you were writing songs. No. So how do you, how do you find that relationship? Could someone coming back to you and saying you need to change this around? Luckily, it was very sympathetic editing, so there was hardly any. The final book is very close to the book that I gave to the publishers, so it hasn't been a problem this Good. time. This I time, <laughs> if I do another one, maybe it will be. I don't know. Okay. I, was, I was terrified of that to be honest with you yeah yeah just getting that getting that feedback and you're inviting someone really in the first person to come back and and pick you apart aren't you yeah and there's always the fear that people would do it just because because it's their job if if it's your job to edit something that you may feel that you have to edit something even if it doesn't need it so uh, you're also uh, going on tour yourself as solo uh, Jim Jim Bob Webb. Uh, I believe you're going to be doing some readings from the book for those gigs yeah it's something I did before and it sort of works 80% of the time (laughs) <laughs> but that, that, that's kind of a nice challenge isn't it because I can imagine you know you're halfway through a, uh, a reading and someone shouts Sherry Fat Man at you or something yeah it has happened when I did it before when I did it, when I did it with the last book it was, very, it was very rare that it did happen but when it did I didn't handle it very well so I'm planning on handling it better this time have you got uh, sort of a few comebacks written on the back of your yeah, hand yeah as well so I may just throw it throw it <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to get a free book then aren't they that's true yeah <laughs> so as, a, as an author um, do you, can you still get lost in a good book when, you know now when you, you, you may be reading a book and you think oh wow they introduced that character really well do you pick up on these things or can you still lose yourself I, I can still totally lose myself I mean it does you know it used to happen with music I, I used to you know I'd listen to music and sort of tell how it worked and think oh that shouldn't have happened there why didn't they do why didn't they do this but it uh, hasn't really happened with books. I mean, I do notice I'm quite aware of bad books. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I don't know whether if I was more, more tolerant of, of reading stuff that wasn't any good. Whereas now I think, oh, that's awful. And maybe, like, give up on it. These days I can give up very, very easily on a, on a book. It's really got to win me over in the first hundred pages, to be honest. Yeah, because oh, it's a horrible thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, feel, yeah. Sort of feel like you want to stick to the it's like not finishing the marathon or something. Yeah. So now, now looking back at Carthage Unstoppable Sex Machine, now you remembered in my circle of friends because I put it on Facebook that we're going to talk that during the writing of that period uh, and, and later on a solo work as well, you're a social commentator, uh, and I think I think that that shows in in Driving Jarvis Ham too. I right. think that there's certainly bits in there, but I mean, do you think there are any bands today that are, are, are comparable? Well, not not that I've heard. I mean, I, you know, there probably are. I'm sure there are. I, I think they're probably there and they're underground. It's just, you, you know, the, yeah. the, the cold plays and the keens of this world aren't, aren't, you know... Yeah, and if you don't seek things out, you know, I'm sort of that age where I'm not really look, I'm not looking for new music and, you know, it's not going to be on the television. It's not even really on the radio. So I saw uh, Dan Lasek and Scroobius Pip a couple, do you know, a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And seeing them was the sort of, even though there's, I don't know, there was, there was something 
being at the gig that reminded me of Carter gigs in a way. But it was maybe that use of sort of, you know, technology and sort of quite intelligent political lyrics and that. But uh, I think it's difficult now because you have to compromise if you're making music now. Just, just really simple things that, like, if we did a gig and there was a sponsor's name up somewhere near the stage or something, we, you know, we'd get it taken down. Yeah. Whereas now everyone, you know, will we'll easily just say, you know, I'm here, you know, appearing on behalf of Levi's. Or, you know, everyone's yeah. very sort of in with the man, and I don't think you have a choice. So if, even if you're making, you know, you're sort of making these radical left-wing statements or something but you're still there being sponsored by top man or something you know yeah yeah, yeah. what well, you're supposed to play any festival certainly now you, you know you you're signing not to be part of it yeah which didn't happen you know that wasn't wasn't the case when we were around so it was maybe easier to to not compromise so so writing wise do you lock yourself away in a in a, in a shed do you have an office or something or do you can you just write anywhere i've got i mean i have got a sort of i've got a room that's that was well i mean this is a sign of the way i've changed i suppose it was my tiny home studio and it's now <laughs> now where I write books but you know so all the studio stuff is still in there but it's it sort of hasn't been touched for a long time but I, t- I do tend to write you know little bits of stuff on trains and buses and uh, if I get in a bath I'm going to think of a load, load of things and, and I haven't got a pen yeah, it's a waterproof, but, waterproof yeah, pen for Christmas then that's what you need I'm not to. great at sitting down and, and just writing I have to have a load of little bits of scrawled paper bits of paper and stuff and then try and pull that together into what becomes a book i see so writing wise uh what's next are you, are you working on something now have you got something on the on the burner so i've started another book um i've because kind of, i've been sort of caught up in you know jarvis ham and organizing the tour i haven't written anything for it for a little while so i need to really concentrate but yeah hopefully there will be at least one more that's kind of where my it's where my writing head at is in is, is books at I the see. moment not so- music Thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, all all the best with it. This is Tony Hawkes, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. Well, we've heard from the author. Uh, Now it's time for The Reading Room Book Group's verdict on driving Jarvis Ham. I'm Paul Tyler, and joining the studio is our regular reviewer, Making Sense of My Meanderings, Jill Hart. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Paul. Hello. Now, the blurb for driving Jarvis Ham tells us that it's a brilliantly witty story of unconventional, unwavering, and regularly exasperating friendship. Meet Jarvis Ham, tea room assistant, diarist, lift cadger, princess die fan, secret alcoholic and relentless seeker of fame. Jarvis may be an all-round irritant, but he's harmless, and deep down you know he's got a heart of gold, hasn't he? His oldest and only friend reflects on his life with Jarvis Ham. Infatuations, questionable hairstyles, homemade charity singles, reality TV auditions, paedophile alerts at the local swimming baths. He wonders what it would have been like if they'd never met. But what are you going to do? He's a mate. Driving Jarvis Ham is a novel for anyone who's ever found themselves looking across at a childhood friend and wondering why they still know them. Seal, what did you think of this? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the light touch of it. It was a nice, easy read. As I was reading it, I wasn't quite that sure in some places, but once I'd finished and looked back at it, I enjoyed it. And I particularly enjoyed the whole nostalgia Englishness side of it, which I'm sure we're going to speak about in a moment. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come to the uh, nostalgia bit, because that's something uh, that Cathy's going to pick up on later on now. I really, really like this. Um, Jim Bob, the author, uh, used to be in a band called Cartoon Stop or Sex Machine. I know... You, there, there's no, you know, you haven't got thirty something in I your don't record have a collection, have you? Gene, which is sad, uh, no, no, no. But that's that's why you're here. So I don't think I was under any illusion that I was going to enjoy this. You know, I, I like the the lyrical style of that band, uh, and you know, the, the the words always meant a lot. So I thought, well, you know, writing seems a natural mm. place 
uh, for Jim to go to. But I'm, I'm prepared to say when I don't something, don't like something. But I, I really, really enjoyed this book. Um, now I really like the, the drawings and the pictures as well, which I've never really seen in, in, in a book an before. Interest, it's something quite interesting, isn't it? I wasn't quite sure what to make of them and what they added to it, or how successful they were. But did you find that successful in the end? Yeah, I did. I did. And you sort of get used to it and uh, you you end up quite puzzled when you've got a page with just words on. Um, but, yeah. you know, the, to perhaps illustrate that, there are uh, moments where he, pulls, he writes, he talks about the diary, Jarvis Hammer's diary, mm. but it's not a diary. It's a suitcase full of artifacts and things. And, you know, and that's how people do remember things, you know, just through possessions and stuff. But it was uh, it was it was all, it was all done in uh, really sort of uh, crude, would you say crude drawings? Naive. Yeah, naive, naive drawing. Yeah, crude might might lead it <laughs> up another. Not quite the same thing. Might lead it up another yeah. path. Um, now let's uh, bring in the clip uh, now, Johnny, if we can. This is uh, a part where um, the the narrator of the book and also uh, Jarvis are at the swimming pool. At the pool, there were three swimming lanes: a slow lane, a medium lane, and a fast lane. Although Jarvis was too slow for the slow lane, he would insist on going in the fast lane and annoying all the serious swimmers who'd be stuck in a gridlock behind him. What he really needed was his own lane, a Jarvis lane. And there was the time when he first jumped into the water rather than climbing down the short ladder. And I swear to God, he bounced along the surface like in the dam busters. Twice a week for 350 years, I had to get up when it was still dark and 15 minutes to stupid to go swimming with Jarvis. I had to watch him crowbar his jelly baby of a body into his old glory speedos. I'd have to wait while he meticulously folded his clothes like he was making origami swans and put them in one of the changing room lockers. I'd have to lend him 20 pence piece to get the key out of the lock. Jarvis never had his own 20p. He never had any money on him, ever. Every time we go anywhere, he always says he needs to go to the cash point first, and it has to be the cash point in the wall of 1234 Street, as it's the only one he trusts. Everyone is out to steal Jarvis Ham's identity for some reason. His pin number is 1234, by the way. Feel free. He's all yours. And that works. That writing style for me really, really works. Um, so what about the character? What about Jarvis Ham, the character? He's a very unlikable character on the outside. And the narrator actually isn't any more likable. They're two pretty unlikable characters, I find. But you do actually find yourself drawn into their world and empathising with them to a degree that at the end you find quite surprising in some ways, yeah, I think. I agree. I don't, I, yeah, I agree with you. And I don't know whether the uh, the narrator was supposed to be, you know, sort of the good guy. He's certainly very funny and witty, which is, uh, you know, that, that... But quite a nasty, cruel wit in this, to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there, there's something that, you know, he perhaps needs Jarvis as much as Jarvis needs yes. him. You know, he there's... needs that happy family life at the ham of hams that Jarvis has as much as Jarvis needs him to support his ego. I, I, the characters, I, I, I wasn't sure, as I say, I was reading them all the way through and I wasn't quite sure. I felt the narrator was a very unreliable narrator, which is good in a way because it's obviously designed that way and it destabilises what you're thinking as you're going through the text. But yes, I, I, I was engaged almost despite myself, which is which is a good thing. Yeah, when you talk about engaged, I was engaged right from the very start. The introduction, it, it grabs you and it does grab you straight away. And uh, that, that style and the, the, the wit and the, the humour is yes. definitely there, which, you know, is yes. certainly always there in the, uh, the Carter USM lyrics as well. You know, the, 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 the style was always there. Uh, now we've got our regular email reviewer, Kathy. Thanks for getting in touch, Kathy. Driving Jarvis Ham. I have mixed feelings about this book, but on the whole, enjoyed the way it was written. The author reflected the main character, Jarvis, well by using a diary and Jarvis's friend to characterise his personality. Through the diary, I was drawn into the darkly comical aspect of the book and given an insight into Jarvis's character, which often made me feel uncomfortable. 
I liked the nostalgia which unfolded as the book progressed, but was disappointed at times with the repetition of the story. I liked the twist at the end, and have considered too whether I really know my childhood friends. Uh, now, the interesting point I think Cathy brings up there is about nostalgia, mm, and this, yes. is, this is something we want to talk I think about. that's one of the parts that engaged me very much. It's very much about an 80s childhood and a 90s youth, and it really did take you back to what Englishness was at that time, I think. They spend a lot of time talking about road numbers and routes, which anybody who had a, a father at that time that anywhere went anywhere in the car, I don't know if they still do, talk about road routes, a lot of it is based around the Devon cream teas that they serve in the cafe that Jarvis lives in, um, the Ham of Hams. And by the time you finish, you really want one of those cream teas. I don't know about yeah. you, Paul. Oh, I've yeah, really yeah. eaten one of those. Yeah, definitely. Also, the, the big theme that goes through it is uh, that Jarvis actually worships Princess Diana and is devastated when she dies. That's not giving any plots away now, is it? Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, it's yeah. obviously been well documented, uh, Diana, yes. still by the Daily Express. But uh, it did take me back to how, at the time, I mean, the character in this is absolutely grief-ridden over this event, and it's treated in quite a comical fashion, which we tend to look at that now. But what I, it reminded me was at the time, Everybody was actually grief-ridden by the event and the whole country was shot by it. It just actually reminded me about that, something about that period and what it was like to be a young person then that I think we've forgotten now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the hysteria that surrounded it. I mean, yeah. you know, one of the one of the things that sticks out in my mind about Diana's death was that the Radio One wouldn't let Mark and Lard go back on the breakfast show because they didn't think they'd they'd handle it very well. I re- <laughs> read about that in a great book, uh, all about Radio One. You know, just just you know, just, just little things like that. Yeah. Uh, Everybody was fascinated with her at the time. I know I was working in a, a a store in Lincoln at the time. She visited us, and we were all told nobody's allowed to leave their posts when she comes past. And of course, as soon as she appeared, ev- all the shop assistants and everybody they all ran to the door apart from I think me the manager and about a dozen shoplifters who had a wonderful <laughs> afternoon but um yes it was it was something that it was the real flavor of the time yeah and I think it created that flavor very well yeah and it was a flavor I mean that this character Jarvis wants to be famous and it was it was a it, I, I put it uh, to Jim in the interview about uh it was a time before Britain's Got Talent because this this character is definitely one of these people you're going to see on Britain's Got Talent with no talent but still getting on the telly. He would have been there. Yeah. He would have been there. But this is the time, you know, just sort of leading up to it and it just touches on Big Brother and then sort of it just seemed that after that, after that Big Brother moment, it, it's almost, it almost seems a time, very hard to remember a time before reality TV. Yes. A more innocent time, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, That's I think. It's a better time. <laughs> a time when there were little chefs along all the... Um, all the A1s and the A46 and everywhere. Yeah, yeah I mean, just shortly yeah. after reading this, I was uh, up and down the A1, and you yes. see those things now, and you, you see do. them shut down, and they're, you know, obviously the big... You see a lack of opportunity for serial killers in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, which brings us neatly... Well done, Jill, you've uh, crowbarred the, uh, the, subplot <laughs> of the subplot of the story through there, is that there are uh, there's a serial killer on the loose, and he's, he's, he's happening in these little roadside chef places. Uh, and we can't talk really too much towards no. the end, and we can't, you know, no. let, let too much in. Now, there's, there's something right at the very beginning of this book and uh, you know even, even now I can't talk about that because it's such a it's there's something written in the, for the first couple of pages that after you've read it and you go back and, and you look at it maybe for a radio review uh, you just think wow that's that's genius uh, but I can't talk about nice, it I can't say neat, why tight plot that mm. with a twist at the end that links everything up it's a very well crafted thing 
really, uh, in that it does that very well. And we were saying earlier about it's quite interesting, I think, that I came to this, I have no music genes, as we know, and mm-hmm. uh, I came to this with no idea who this guy is that's written it, although he's obviously a musician. And it's quite interesting, I think, if you come across somebody in one field of the arts and then they go to something else, is it is it a benefit to them, do you think, or is it a... Uh, well, I think uh, that his, his, his former band Carter USM were very were a very lyrical band, and, right. and you know, and uh, they're very influential. I think, um, and there was a bit in the Independent last week actually talking about that and saying that you know it can steer against you. You know, mm. if people if people are a bit dubious that you know you you're a musician, are you now an author? Does that give you a right to be an author? And uh, there's a lot of awful stuff out there. So I think you know to sort of come through that mm. and bring out something. Uh, and I think this has been pretty much well received. Uh, certainly got some great reviews. And uh, well, that brings us on now to June. Are you going to recommend this? Yes, I am. Good. A short one word answer for you, Paul. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm going to translate Kathy's email as a yes. Uh, because this is a dictatorship, not a, <laughs> not a democracy. Uh, so, yeah, it's a reading room recommend. Uh, go out and buy Driving Jarvis Ham. And uh, next month, there's going to be no uh, review next month. We're not going to be on the wireless next month. Uh, we're going to have a huge hangover following the reading room live, I think, uh, which features Jill. Are you ready, Jill? Are you ready for the, for the reading room live for, next yes, week? I'm poised. Uh, the next programme, July. Uh, it's going to be the 1st of July, I think, which is our second birthday party special. Uh, we're going to be reviewing The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce, which I'm about 50 pages into, and I'm not going to tell you what I think of it so far. The Reading Room's 101 Books to Read Before You Die. Hello, I'm John Osborne, and my nomination is Actual Air by David Berman. Uh, which is a poetry book by this American poet. He's got this incredible way of looking at the world. His poems are so beautiful and so funny and so kind of at an angle that no one else is coming from. And he creates these beautiful worlds. The first poem in the collection is called Snow, about a conversation he has with his little brother about seeing some snow angels on the, on the ground. And um, like it really changed the way that I wrote poetry. I think it's impossible to read that book without coming away and finding a, a whole new writing style and a whole new outlook of life. There's nothing pretentious about it, there's nothing arty, he's not trying to prove something. It's not really too political or too kind of about romance or about himself, it's just these beautiful images, it's just a collection of images that just like stay with you for a long time. Thanks to John Osborne, who's one of the stars of The Reading Room Live, where our special guest is the actor, comedian and author, Robert Llewellyn. One of the many interesting things about his new book, News from Gardenia, was the way it's been published. Unbound Books is a crowdsourcing publisher, allowing authors to communicate directly to its readers and funding books before they're even written. I recently spoke to John Mitchinson, co-founder and also the director of research for the panel show QI. I put it to John that to come up with a new model for publishing, there has to be a fault with the current one. I think one of the problems is it's just very, very wasteful. What happens traditionally is you know, a, a publisher will take on an author with no real sense of who is going to buy that author's books, and they may or may not pay an advance, and advances are getting smaller and smaller. They then print a number of copies that they sort of wet finger in the air think they're going to be able to sell. They put those copies out in a bookshop and hope for the best. Now, in some cases, obviously, that works brilliantly because the books become successful and everybody's happy, the publisher makes money, the author makes money. But one in five authors don't earn back their advance. And a quarter of all the books that are printed each year are are destroyed and pulped. And worse still, I think, is that the average earning of a UK author, if you take out the top 10%, it's it's, uh, £4,000. 
you add in the top 10%, it's still only £16,000. So, I mean, I think the problem really is that it's, it's dispiriting, and I think it's a disincentive for people to write. So we started with a blank sheet of paper saying, this seems a very, very kind of uh, topsy-turvy way of doing it. Why don't we try and find a, an audience before we end up printing and distributing the book? Okay, and quite specifically, I want to know exactly where that, that idea happened, along with uh, Dan Kieran and Justin Pollard, uh, the, the other co-founders. Where exactly? Was this uh, sort of three in the morning in a pub? Or? I'm afraid it was absolutely <laughs> in a pub. It was in a pub with a blank sheet of paper. We were, we're, all three of us are authors, and I've also been a publisher, and before that I was marketing director of Waterstones. So it came really out of a frustration with the way things had come, and also an extreme sort of excitement with what the potential of digital uh, publishing and social media now enables us to be in touch directly with people really, really quickly and really, really cheaply. You can actually build a business online and directly put authors and readers in direct contact. And this is a huge change because traditionally publishers only really get to readers through retailers, through the Waterstones or Amazon or the WH Smith. So our idea was, what if we were able to match the excitement which we see all around us. There's now 150 literary festivals in the UK. There's something like 80,000 book groups. People are reading more than ever before. So it seemed to us, why not find a way of putting authors and readers in direct contact with one another? From, from your site, uh, you produce videos, and um, they, they give the plots down and the, and the basic ideas. And an extract. We always, particularly with fiction, we have to be convinced that there's enough there. That, so there's, there's, a, there's a good chunk of text for people to read. But the idea is, if you like the idea of it and you like the pitch, you can stick in from as little as £10 uh, up to, you know, as much as, in some cases, £1,000 if you want to, to have a, a character named after you. That's a couple of the authors we know have done that. But the idea is you, what you're becoming is a sort of a patron. You're helping make a book happen. It's not like walking into a bookshop and just buying a book. It's, it's actually becoming part of the process of, of, the, of the book existing. Yeah, and you, and you do feel part of that process. In advance of Robert Llewellyn coming uh, to our live event, I, I stumped up the money, which, uh, do you know what, actually being involved in this programme, I'm not used to doing these days, uh, and, uh, and, and stumping up and pledging. So now my name is in the back of this book. Absolutely, and, and, and will be in the back of all the editions. We go on and do an edition that goes through into all the bookstores and had a paperback and, and an e-book. And but is that, is that then, I suppose, based on, on the success or the word of mouth of the book that you're the first edition you've had? See, but I suppose that's only to a certain extent, I suppose. You, uh, I would assume there's been no major plot changes because of a, read, a reader's well, suggestion. you know, the thing is, it's different for different authors. Robert is particularly good. He's, you know, he's, he's built up a very, very kind of committed following on Twitter and Facebook. And I think he does listen to his readers. And I think in, in most cases, writers are quite keen to have feedback from readers. Whether or not they take the feedback and change things, I think, is up to them. But 
I think it is that sense. In most cases, readers want the writers to write the books that they want to write. And what happens a lot in traditional publishing is a writer will write a book and then there'll be a lot of second guessing. There'll be a lot of people who'll say, well, W.A. Smith don't like the jacket or can you make this, you know, can you make it more like uh, Stieg Larsson or can you change it to be the... And actually, I think that's quite dispiriting for a lot of writers. They, they, it's their imagination and they want their books to be the books that they originally conceived. Would you think that this, I, mean, I wouldn't think this is a, a platform maybe for, for new writers. I mean, you need, a, you need an agent, well, do you, to, it, to get involved? It's an, it's an interesting thing because, I mean, we work with agents, but we've got several new writers who we funded one successfully, a, a, a woman called Jennifer Pickup, who's written a brilliant kind of young adult novel called Unbelievable, which, which is released in, in a couple of weeks' time. And we worked with an online writing group called ABC Tales. And through that network and being able to sort of get publicity for her, for her work, we were able to get that book funded. So this is a, a very direct way of introducing new writers to readers. Of, of course, in some ways, it's, it's easy if somebody is well-known as Robert Llewellyn. It's easier to get the book funded quickly. But at the same time, you only need a few hundred people to stump up and pledge to get a, 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 a good new writer launched. And that's something that the traditional, again, the traditional model really struggles with because they just don't take on new writers for that reason. I mean, we're very keen. We, you know, we, we encourage people to submit ideas and, and pitches to us because we're very keen to try and build the, the, the careers of young writers. I'll be, uh, I'll be putting my video together, my video presentation for, it, for yeah. you. <laughs> and uh, also, it's, it's a good deal for the authors as well, isn't it? I suppose they, 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 uh, with 50%, yeah, we, we, they get we, a quite we, high markup here. And, you know, if we do end up deciding that we haven't got enough pledges and it's not worth going on, well, the author might have lost a bit of time, but they won't have, they won't have that horrible feeling of having had books printed and stuck in shops and appearing in remainder bookshops. I see. And I mean, as well as uh, continuing with Unbound Books, you continue to be the director of research for uh, QI as well, <laughs> which, which sounds to me like the biggest procrastination uh, <laughs> job. In the, you know, where, where does the actual work start and, and well, the well, enjoyment well, end with it? I, I, it's, it's, um, it's just delicious. The thing is with QI, I can do it at two in the morning. I, I do it when I get up. It's, it's reading and spending time online. I love, particularly love going to the libraries and finding old books. We have a very good group of about six of us who, who sort of do the research and write the scripts on the show. And I also, with John Lloyd, write the books. So it's barely work, to be honest. The question I'm about to ask you, you may have been asked this a million times, or you might never have been asked it, but I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's the former. Uh, the end of the alphabet, when we get to the end of the alphabet with, <laughs> the, with the panel game, what happens there? Do we go to numbers? Yeah, we're going to go to numbers, so it just go on infinity. Infinity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought you might go on a holiday or something. but uh... Well, you know, I think John and I will feel, John Lloyd and I, who's uh, John's idea it was, and who's the, who's the sort of executive producer for the show, I think by the time we get to Z, we'll probably both feel like we can, we can take a, a bit of time off. Yeah, well, well earned it is. Now you mentioned the QI books there. I mean, do you think the uh, the QI books would have been uh, a, a good project for for Unbound? Do you think well, they would have sold through there? It's a, it's an interesting one for us. Faber and Faber are sort of partners with Unbound in terms of uh, the Unbound books that go into the trade. And Faber and Faber happen to be the QI publisher. And we have one more book that's uh, that's under contract with uh, with Faber, which we're doing has not been announced yet, but it will be for Christmas this year, which will be uh, the ultimate kind of one-liner, you know, the facts that blow your socks off. But we've never done this, but we've actually, over 10 years, it's our 10th anniversary, really, this, this series, 
we thought, why don't we do, you know, the killer fact book? Because we have gathered so many. And, you know, we've done very, very well with the books of general ignorance. And so that will be, I think this is an exclusive. I don't think we've announced this publicly anywhere. So. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, exclusively, I'd like to say to my parents who do listen to this occasionally, uh, that's what I'd like for Christmas, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John, thank you so much for your time. Very much Not appreciate you coming on the programme. Thank you. And, and I look forward to hearing the programme. This is Karen Maitland, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. Now it's time to hear from another of the stars of The Reading Room Live, Andrew Golding. Inlay books. I suppose someday soon I'll have to succumb to iTunes. My stereo is a gramophone, and I, the dog gazing into it. Surrounded by beautiful, tactile artefacts arranged alphabetically, then by order of release, this is where I find my peace. I'm loath to submit to computerised ease, but I'll crumble and upload all my old singles, then take them by the barrel load to Scope or Oxfam in the hope some Britpop fan might feed a starving African with his love of early blur. But oh, those happy times spent rooting through CD racks, praying that some buried treasure, rare session tracks or that debut album might be revealed by the next flick. We'd pay upwards of 30 quid to later boast this is the first thing they ever did. Hey ho, let go, I tell myself. The flick has been replaced by the click, and albums are now purchased track by track, not plucked from the back of a rack. I weep for the kids who just buy the radio hits and nothing besides. They will never know the magic of B-sides. Thanks for listening. Our next show will be The Reading Room Live. Have we mentioned that yet? If you can't make it in person, the show will be available as a special two-part podcast in the coming weeks. For more details, go to our website, readingroom.podbean.com. And we'll be back with our next regular show in July. We'll see you then.